I'm Dan Rundy. Um, I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. We're hosting a Chevron Forum on the Sustainable Development Goal Number Seven: Affordable and Clean Energy. I think um, we've got massive urbanization in the world. You've got a global middle class. You have enormous amounts of gro growing demand for power and energy all over the world. At the same time, you've got to balance that with uh, legitimate environmental uh, demands of citizens and also for us to, I mean, if you've ever been to Beijing, nobody wants to live in Beijing because the air is dirty. It's, like, it's just not livable. So in terms of livable cities, livable places, environmental concerns, so affordable and clean energy is what the goal says. So it's an incredible task and an incredible challenge. Um, I think we've got a really interesting panel to discuss these issues. And so um, I'm going to uh, turn it over first to my colleague, uh, Sarah Ladislaw, who's a senior vice president here at CSIS and ably runs our energy program. So Sarah, why don't you kick it off? Great. Thanks. And thanks to Dan and to um, Chevron and to everybody else on the panel for having this discussion. You know, it's really interesting. We hold a lot of events here at CSIS, and I've gotten tons of inquiries about this one, and lots of people reaching out about excitement to talk about SDG 7. And I think, in a way, that really speaks to um, what I think is the important part of not just SDG 7, but the entire sustainable development goal process, which is um, the effort to be inclusive, right? The effort to try and take the very complex landscape of sustainable sustainability challenges that exist out there in the world, and to try and put them forward in a bunch of shared goals. And so anybody who went through the process of developing uh, the SDGs oh and God. all of the sub-goals that go underneath each of 169. the goals, yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, a simplified form of a very complex conversation, but it actually is. Uh, and I think that the, the nice thing for me is in watching some of those goals take shape, which I'll talk about in just a minute, is um, it is really, you know, the fact that in order to get to these very simple sort of like targeted uh, uh, goals and objectives, there's really complicated conversations about the value of each of those things. So, for example, like a really simple goal to like, you know, uh, eradicate energy poverty. Well, what is it? What is an acceptable level of energy access that we can therefore say we have solved that problem? It was a really productive conversation for us to think about that, to think about the timeframes over which um, that was achievable and, and the different technologies and strategies for being able to do that. Um, there's also goals within SGG 7 for uh, the role of renewable energy and energy efficiency. And I like to say to everybody, you know, because I work on energy, that there's a lot of the SDG goals that affect the world that I work in. SDG 7 is just sort of the most pronounced version of that. And so um, we're not, uh, we, we are not necessarily on track to meeting those goals. I think there's been some really good analysis out there uh, about places where we need to improve uh, different, you know, targets that we need to improve on. I know some of the other panelists will talk about that. But I think the important thing for me has been um, to see the intersection of this important sort of priority on creating uh, clean energy access uh, and, uh, and clean energy and a more efficient energy system, modern energy systems, um, particularly at a time when the energy landscape that I pay a lot of attention to is changing so profoundly. Um, and so I actually think that this focus on the SDG 7 and, um, and on the, the priority of clean and affordable uh, energy supplies around the world has been really productive in opening up new frontiers for people who are vending new types of uh, energy technologies, um, people who are, you know, trialing off 
off-grid and microgrid and other kinds of things. It's really been just amazing to watch the evolution of those markets in a short period of time. And I think it has really changed the framework and the attitude with which many developing countries are approaching and looking at um, the way in which they're going to have to develop their energy sectors. And so I think, you know, for um, for something that, I, that was really complicated to get to, uh, I think it's been a fairly effective uh, tagline and set of goals uh, for the world to orient itself around. So one, there's two points I wanted to make. Just One is on this issue of tracking progress. One of the things that was said was we're going to need a data revolution to, to meet the, the SDGs because we're going to have to be able to track this in real time or have some better way of of getting data and statistics, et cetera. So I do think it'll be interesting to see how we're doing in terms of exact, exact measurement of, of sort of our program, where the gaps are. Um, so that was kind of a comment more than anything else. The second, the point, the question I wanted to ask you though is why, why should the U.S. care? If I said to you SDG number seven and what would you say to a member, what would you say to the incoming House Foreign Affairs Committee chair as to why they should care about this? Why should, why should the U.S. care about this? I don't think it's a fundamentally unfamiliar set of arguments that you have to use for why we care about developing countries in general, right? right. I mean, I think the idea that we have uh, the same set of shared goals, right? I mean, we, we have we have an interest as uh, as the American public in um, uh, sort of you know stability and uh, and development in places around the world, right? And we I mean, we have we're, we that's just sort of the nature of the world that we work in and live in. I would actually say you know to the extent that you think um, that SGG seven in particular is tied back into I can't help but think about it because there's a, a COP going on right now to sort of the global climate challenge. You know, it was actually sort of part and parcel of the idea that we need to be able to help um, developing countries develop in a way that is also helpful in mitigating the challenge of global climate change, right? And so the idea that we were going to try and do this and solve this access problem, as well as create new markets for clean energy, which has been enormously successful thus far, in, in addition to reducing emissions, all of these things were sort of part of a, a, a world in which we all needed to head towards in, in those terms. And so I think that it, the, the logic around that was uh, much more compelling in federal terms when we had an administration that genuinely cared and thought about those things. Now I think it's a little bit more of a, from a U.S., you know, a, 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 an executive branch U.S. government perspective, it's a little bit more like traditional development, right? Which is like we care about these economies because we should care about these economies because we have U.S. companies that can sell into these places. We've got the sort of soft power influence aspects of it. So all, for all of those reasons as well. Do we, are we still a leader in renewable energy in the sense of, say, either manufacturing, whether it's solar panels or wind? If you think about some of the renewables, how, how, does, how does the U.S. match up or stack up compared to, say, other global, global competitors in terms of the manufacturing and, and the making of this stuff? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things, I can't say if he's here, but um, uh, one of our affiliates in the program is from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and they have this really wonderful... Uh, slide for whether it's a solar PV or a wind turbine or whatever the case might be. It's just like, you know, the conversation we've been having on NAFTA on trade, right? It's like, how much is a U.S. good, right? And so much of our products go from one country to another, and there's so many component pieces of the value of that product that is um, comes from many different countries. And I think that that is true of uh, clean energy technologies as it is anything else. Okay, great. Thank you. Milagros, thanks for being here. What a pleasure to have you. And so you're with the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank Group. You're the private sector arm 
of the World Bank. So if I say to you SDG number seven and clean and affordable energy, how does IFC fit into this conversation? Well, let me let me give you some numbers because I think that, that it's important that you we take into account how what are the order of magnitude of the problem that we are trying to solve to solve. And I'm going to focus more on the the access to the access uh, to power. Now what 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 uh, is needed to really scale the clean energy? How we are, how, what is the amount of money that is needed to really achieve or to provide um, universal access to, to energy? And there are different institutions that have been doing with the numbers, but it's estimated that it's needed 36 billion per year. The International Energy Agency has done some studies and they say, okay, we can figure out more or less around 14 that can be available. But what is the rest? Where the, the rest is going to come? Governments, and most of these are coming from governments, so who else can contribute to this? And, to this? and one of the, the most important stakeholders and the most important players in this, in, to, to succeed in this challenge is the private sector. The private sector is critical if we really want to achieve the universal access to, to energy. The private sector, I think, that is do doing pretty good, is doing pretty good, and let's take the access to the people that is in small rural areas. In the last five years, I mean, the companies that are working and providing the services, they have grown 60% every year. They have multiplied in five years by 25. But the numbers that we are expecting is that by 2020, this will reach 4 billion. 4 billion compared to the 36 that we are going to reach, I think it's a huge, huge gap. But there is another additional challenge. What is happening is that uh, now this space is very crowded with a lot of new entrants coming and to providing this type of energy services to remote areas. But what is happening is just a few of them are, the, are, are having profits profitable companies. So if these companies don't become profitable, investors are not going to put any money into that. <coughs> so how can we solve that? And this is where I think that multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the international development banks, working with governments, but working as well with the private sector can play a critical role. They usually associate us with people just providing, providing money for private companies. But uh, our role goes far beyond just providing money. And it's about just uh, helping uh, our clients, helping private companies to do what they are not able to do it by themselves, creating the enabling environment. We created some time ago, like, I don't know, five or six years ago, a program that it was, called, it was called Light in Africa, really trying to create the market conditions to expand the access to energy to, to, for, for rural areas in Africa. We started piloting in Kenya, but having a programmatic approach, analyzing what are the real challenges that these companies are facing to really reach to the people. And we were working with governments on regulation. We were waiting, working with customers to create demand, creating campaigns of customer awareness. We were, we were working as well, creating distribution, distribution channels, providing access to fund, funding. I mean, a lot of 
different elements that all together made a success. This program started in Africa, in Kenya, and now it has been expanded to more than 10 countries, and we have reached more than 170 million people with this program. So private sector is critical, but private sector needs help to really create the enabling environment. Okay, so talk about, you, you're a financier, you also work with and provide advice. Talk a little bit about some of the, the work you do, at the, not at the national government, but at the sub-national government. Do you work with either mayors or state, the equivalent of the United States of state governments at IFC? Does that, does that come across your radar screen? Yes, we are working, of course, we are working with governments. I would say coordinated and closely with the World Bank, because as I mentioned, the World Bank is usually takes care of the public part of the, of the of our clients and we are more focused on the private sector. But sometimes it's important to incorporate the private sector views in the regulation, if all the, especially not the technical regulation, to make the regulation a success. So we are working with governments, but we are working as well with a subnational government. We are working with cities to see to on energy efficiency, on clean energy, being as a sponsor, providing them the programs that they need to put in place so that that they can reduce the consumption of the cities. We are working as well with state-owned enterprises in the transmission and distribution. Transmission and distribution is a critical piece uh, to really solve uh, these challenges of universal access. We are working with them, providing not only financing, but also corporatizing them, making them efficient and making them uh, credit worthy because investors have them as of takers and they need to provide them sufficient guarantees so that they can invest in renewable energy programs. So yes, definitely um, subnational governments and subnational institutions are part of our clients. Thank you. Thank you very much. Janelle, thanks for being here. Here with TetraTech. Explain to our television audience and to our live audience, love saying television audience. Janelle, tell us about what is TetraTech and how do you work on these issues? Because I, I think you work, on, you work on these issues of clean and affordable energy from a number of different angles. So TetraTech is a global um, company headquartered in the, in the United States. We're about 17,000 people worldwide and about 25% of our business is focused on international development, specifically on energy and other sectors. So we get hired by the World Bank, IDB, Asian Development Bank, USAID, et cetera, to help implement some of the programs that um, Milagros referenced. So what are we seeing and what do we do? So we support USAID and other donors to run programs that help bring new clean energy innovation. One of them is something called Parent Agriculture and Energy Grand Challenge. And when you were talking about clean energy, I would say five, ten years ago, the focus was on clean cook stoves. The Conversation has really changed and, and grown. We're now focused on the intersection of clean energy and ag, clean energy and water. So that means things like solar-powered milk chillers, solar-powered pumps, things that are not connected to the grid but really bring clean energy access to really change lives in remote parts of Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Another part of the conversation or the mix of, of what we do is really that enabling environment. And what we found is you can support innovators and help bring their technology to market. A lot of US 
USAID's programs have de-risked the technology, but in order for them to scale, you need those government regulations to work. And so the importance of least cost generation planning, what is the mix that we need to have in each countries for renewable energy? What percentage solar? What percentage water? The regulations, ensuring that you've got um, clear and transparent regulations to enable competitive procurement. So we've supported USAID with competitive procurement in Mexico and Kazakhstan, resulting in some of the lowest prices for solar worldwide. And that minimizes corruption, minimizes one minister selecting one company over the other for a backdoor deal. So for us, it's um, both off-grid, ensuring that those technologies can be piloted, de-risked, working with uh, various financing institutions to use the local financial intermediaries to pilot programs, and then also working on the enabling environment to ensure that those companies can scale or where you have grid-connected projects that those regulations don't become a, a bottleneck. The utility improvement is key. If you have an excellent project and your utilities bankrupt, it's just not going to work. And I think in a lot of the programs that we've seen, there's been a real focus on the private sector. Don't forget the governments. If they are not, going, if they are not supportive of what you're doing, they're going to stemmy all your efforts. Thank you. Okay, so Janelle, the, a lot of the issues that you work on aren't necessarily the most, um, uh, sort of most spectacular, but they're really critical. In sexy. The sense of, yeah. right, is that a they're way not to describe sexy. it? As, look, yeah, I was looking for the right <laughs> word for this, but, but, but isn't that one of the challenges in the sector? Is that a lot of the problems are problems of governance? That there, it's regulatory issues, or it's land titling, or having a capable government that knows what it's doing? Because a lot of the decisions are made by governments, often not at the national level. It's, it's some third tier city that we can hardly find on a map, we don't know how to pronounce, and they're making big multi-billion dollar decisions about how they're gonna power their future. Isn't, isn't that basically what, and so you, you guys fit in and AID fits in in trying to help with, with some of those issues, is that right? That's correct, and, and that's why Power Africa, where you know we are one of the implementers has been so successful, because it has focused on transaction assistance to individual projects, but it's also focused at the country level. You want Chevron to come in, you also want, um, delight to come in with solar lanterns. Well, you also need to solve all of these problems to be able to make the country attractive for investment. Um, all the problems that energy, clean energy access, uh, affordable energy are experiencing in those countries also relates to water, also relates to transportation. It's the interdependency of all infrastructure issues. And so what you find is if you can improve some of the regulations for energy, some other parts of it, you know, some other uh, sectors also benefit. I, th I think a big part of the work is educating ministers. And one of the things that we're doing on one of our projects is really to give innovators and um, big companies like Chevron the language 
that they can use when they're speaking to a minister. They don't care that your project is delayed or that their law is going to be a bottleneck. They want to. They, they speak a language of in the four years, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to my constituency? What this, does this mean to um, a village that cannot get energy and I need those votes? So really looking at what are the policy reforms that we need? What is the financial impact, not just on the companies trying to enter this market and scale, but also in terms of government, so we can use a language to influence them to change. Could you just spend another minute on what is Power Africa? Because I'm not sure everyone here, is, folks who follow this stuff know what it is. What is Power Africa? So Power Africa is an all of US government um, program. I believe it's 12 agencies that really focused on transforming um, Africa in terms of energy, working in over 16 sub-Saharan Africa countries. And it really brought a focus to the issue of clean and affordable energy. And so the US US government has many tools in its toolbox, and uh, President Obama at the time said, look, let us focus, let us bring all our benefits to bear, whether it's USTDA or USAID or the Commerce Department, and really focus on this singular problem. And it has been very successful in catalyzing change, and also with an impact to the US, because it creates new markets for US technologies and for US companies. Could you um, if you talked about, we were talking earlier at lunch about finding the right picture, what would be the picture you would use to, because I think one thing is helping energy companies talk to government ministries and developing countries. I worry that there are some parts of the political system in the United States that may not say this is the most important thing we should be putting our people time and money into, in terms of sort of the issues we've been talking about, in terms of uh, regulatory issues or enabling environment for power or infrastructure. I think they're very important. I'm, I'm still kind of struggling with what's the photo I'm going to use or what's the what's the bumper sticker. I can I can try, but I'd be curious if you've got a thought about what, is there a photo you would show to a member of Congress or to the Secretary of State as to why this isn't you know what would what would that be or what would your bumper? So be? actually, it would be a montage and it would be a plant in rural Iowa. Uh, that is uh, constructing some item. It would be a picture of the plant or um, off-grid, mini-grid in rural Africa. Of course, we have to have the children um, studying under a light bulb. And you also need to have maybe the solar panel or in action, maybe at a health center or some women with that hard hat of the name of the company from Iowa. And so, the focus of the picture will be on linkages and, and the change, you know, from Iowa to rural Kenya, lighting up the world. Okay, I'm buying that. That's great. Great. Thank you, Janelle. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, Rob, thanks for coming all the way from California. You're with Chevron. Um, talk about how does, if I say to you, SDG number seven, affordable and clean energy, what's Chevron's reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say, you know, some of the panelists has touched on it. If you look out the window and look at the world's energy demands, clearly they're on the rise and it's going to require a tremendous amount of innovation. And so no single country or company is going to be the solution to that. Um, when we look at what our role is in a direct sense, you know, we're pretty good at developing and providing reliable, affordable, and ever cleaner energy. And so one of the things we can do is do our core business better and do that as cost effectively and efficient as possible. And that really starts to unlock 
um, some of the energy demand potential uh, in the world. The second thing we can do in a direct sense is, is one of my panelists has touched on really partner with governments and other organizations in countries where we do operate in the developing world to look for opportunities to seek the intersection of a public-private sector partnership to forward um, energy access and development. And then the third thing is a little bit more indirect and it's really sponsoring forums um, such as this one to help elevate um, the conversation around energy access and, and SDG 7. And as we think about kind of the global conversation, I think when you look at progress reports, whether it be from the IEA or other institutions, um, energy access is on the rise, so definitely trending positive, but we still have got some gaps. Um, and as we think about the, the broader kind of energy picture and we think about affordable and clean, the, the other two words I would throw at you would be reliable and scalable. And so the whole objective of SDG 7 is, is really to, to lift people out of poverty. And if you start to think about the progress to date, a lot of those solutions have been focused on smaller scale, um, off-grid type solutions. And when you start to think about what does it require to lift people out of poverty, you need reliable and scalable energy solutions that can really unlock economic growth potential. If you look at some of the data from the World Bank, in Africa, you know, lack of access to electricity is often cited as one of the reasons why there is a lack of employment um, in many nations in Africa. And so it's really about creating that reliable, scalable solution that can lift nations out of poverty and create a more holistic um, global, you know, regional energy system that can enable a service sector or an agricultural sector to grow. And that's only done, as my colleagues have touched on, um, through you know, an enabling regulatory and policy framework from which you can bring um, the private sector and the public sector together to really unlock that investment and innovation. So, Sarah, can I come back to you and just ask you about this issue of scalable? And we had a discussion earlier about innovation. So talk first about the issue of scalable, because I think um, oftentimes, at least in the inside the Beltway conversation, there's much of the discussion of late around sort of developing country and energy have been largely related to off-grid. That's sort of, that's more of an impression. More, I could be completely wrong and, and you can disabuse me of that. But if you could talk about scalable and then talk about how, how should we think about the, the, the role of innovation in achieving clean and affordable energy? So, I mean, not to disparage where we live, right? But like dialogues inside the Beltway, particularly in my field, usually lag what's happening in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, I do think that, like, you hear, you often hear, like, narratives that are sort of like, well, you know, U.S. policy or MDB policy only supports renewables, and renewables aren't competitive. Like, that, it's just not true, right? I mean, renewables are cost competitive. They are the largest growing and fastest growing portion of power generation. Um, you know, the multilateral development banks play a really important role in the U.S. policy discussion around these things, but quite frankly, the vast majority of investment, go not the vast majority, the majority of investment going into the electric power sector last year came from state-owned enterprises, right? So I think one of the things that we have to do when we start to talk about the, the, the investment landscape and the uh, new infrastructure landscape as it relates to energy around the world is really just make sure that our view of what that looks like is up to date, right? And I, so I think what has happened in my mind is that there's actually been 
during a period in which you know the economy was you know not doing that great, lots of folks were not investing in large-scale power generation infrastructure because of for that reason, right? I mean, it was much easier to do incremental small-scale projects, and that was actually good, right? I mean, so there was a lot of innovation that took place both in terms of business models and trialing new kinds of technologies and really working down the cost curve for some of those things. And then we've started to work on regulatory frameworks and policy frameworks for things like auctioning for utility scale solar and renewables and those sorts of things. So so I actually think we've gone through several phases of what this, you know, this looks like. And I think what we've kind of got ourselves back to is a situation where there are a lot of countries that have made tons of progress on SDG 7. And they've done so because they've taken advantage of both on and off grid opportunities because they've had the right policies and incentives. And then there's a bunch of places that just haven't because they don't have those things. And so I think that the, 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 the dialogue about um, how to make those types of energy related infrastructure investments happen is, um, is really important. Uh, to, to have. I, I think that the thing that's actually kind of both hopeful and tricky for countries right now is that they have a lot of options, right? There isn't just like one option for how they might want to create um, power generation infrastructure. And I think a lot of them are grappling with whether they have to sort of choose a grid central structure or an off-grid structure and how they would incorporate those two things and what the planning is involved in all of that. And that can get really complicated. And I think it can be very confusing. And I do think that that's one of the ways in which, you know, the private sector, groups like TetraCheck, groups like the multilateral development banks can help them because otherwise this idea of scale can be elusive, right? Do you get scale from aggregating up a bunch of small scale off-grid projects into mm. something, you know, bigger or do you buy it just because in one power generation project? And I think that there in some places those decisions are very clear cut and in other places they they aren't. And so I think one of the things we've not traditionally done very well in developing you know, sort of development parlance is like understand the political economy of a place and understand like what has been like a, like a traditional barrier for something that would look like an investable large scale power generation project, but they just quite, can't quite get there for one reason or another. And I think what's really great about the world that we live in now is there are some alternatives that are at least challenging governments to go, oh gee, if I don't you know, if I don't fix my utility, or if I don't fix my, you know, my electric power sector model, or if I don't figure out how to get transmission lines built, something else is going to grow up instead. And, and I want to get that right. And I think it's a very positive and productive uh, tension. Rob, could I ask you, if you say the word innovation or scalable, what does that mean for, what does that mean for Chevron? Because you, you use the word scalable, and Sarah, I think just put put out on the table a really interesting explanation of this issue of scale. Well, how does how do you how do you all think about it and how do you think about the the word innovation? Yeah, so I mean innovation, you know, to me really means technology. And so technology can help us um, you know, meet the, the growing challenges of, of, a, of a world that's demanding, you know, cleaner, more reliable energy. I think, you know, in a lot of senses, when you look at some of the renewable technologies like a wind or a solar, it's less a technology story today. The economics are there and it's more of a business model and is the profit margin there. And so, you know, it's a broader question of can you take that innovation and then develop a system that offers a customer uh, a reliable source of power that meets their needs. And when you start to look at sort of the, the various different pieces of options available today, I think what we find is 
you know, the one size fits all approach where you, you can't have all renewable, nor can you have all fossil, you need some sort of combination thereof. And the reality is, you know, that solution is going to be different depending on what geography and where you sit in the world. And so the solution that works for China is not going to be the solution that works for Washington, D.C. or California. And so we just need to recognize that and, and embrace kind of all the different energy sources as we look to couple kind of innovation in that business model and, and figure out a, a, a reasonable path forward to meet the, the growing energy demand of the world. Just this issue of scalable, though, in terms of, in, you know, so Sarah was talking about we could, we could cobble together projects. When, if, if I say scalable, how does that fit into how Chevron thinks about the world? Yeah, and so I think, you know, a lot of the debate is, is, has been touched on when you think about scalable has, has largely been how do you integrate off-grid versus on-grid um, solutions. And I think when we start to think about scalable and what that, world, what that word means to us, it's really about developing an energy system that really starts to unlock the economic growth potential of a nation. And if you can do that with all renewables and in supplying electricity, great, so be it. Um, I think there's technological limits to that. And so you need to couple that, um, particularly with other fuel sources, to address the concerns about reliability and such. And so it's really how do you bring the different energy solutions together to offer the customer what they want? And that's what I would qualify as scalable. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. So Janelle and Milagros, if I say you scalable and innovation, how, how, does, how do you react to those terms? Let me start with you, Janelle. So in terms of innovation, definitely the technology. Uh, we've seen, again, that movement from um, clean, clean cook stoves to solar-powered, even biomass-powered milk chillers or cold storage for vegetables. We've seen the intersection of solar and aquaculture or solar and aeration for aquaculture. So some really interesting uh, new technologies that are inexpensive, that are easy to distribute, that can really reach rural parts of our world. But Along with innovation is the importance of testing, of standards. We've heard some feedback, you know, in Kenya there are like six different solar power pumps. Some work, some don't work, some fail. Um, the importance of the governments having standards for those new innovations. There's also innovation in business models, the pay-as-you-go that has taken off in Kenya using mobile money. And that has really in attracted the interest of large utilities from Europe resulting in scaling of those businesses. I think the one piece that's really missing for me in terms of innovation is innovation of the utility business model. It has to change. Um, you know, the idea of all of these assets um, all over the world or going to the last mile uh, will not work anymore. And I think the Caribbean um, has been um, ahead of, say, Africa and Asia in talking about what does the new business model for a utility look like. We have the utility in Jamaica that has actually spun off a renewable energy um, company, and they're the ones doing distributed generation and integrating it into the grid. And then in terms of scalable, again, what, what we think about and what we focus on 
is how can these startups sell more and how can they go across countries so that, you know, I'm a, I'm a farmer, I'm sitting in Tanzania, and I know that there's a solar power pump that my cousin's husband's friend is using in Kenya. How can I order it? How can I get it? How can I know that it's being um, proven and tested, and we found that a lot of companies have failed. So what has worked in Kenya, they try to take it to Tanzania or to Nigeria, and it, and it won't work. So how do we help them really get global products that will benefit many? Uh, scalable innovation. You, you raised the issue of innovation over lunch, and I was very taken by your comments, so I'd welcome your thoughts here. No, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that innovation is critical, and we need to think that uh, we are facing problems that perhaps we already don't have the solutions, or the solution, the tools that we have in our toolbook box are not the right ones for the future, especially in terms of reaching the poorest people, universal access. Think about the, the, the telecom world. What is the solution that they have reached in Africa? They have not gone through the wires. They have gone directly to mobile phones. This is something that was completely disrupted to the incumbent companies in the different countries. It was something that it was completely unbelievable, and nobody took the initiative. Some entrepreneur companies went there and provided new business models. So for me, as important of technology is the importance of defining new business models. Mm. And these new business models, sometimes they are going to be completely out of the box and are going to lead to different players thinking, uh, taking important roles to provide electricity. Do you really think that uh, telecom companies can provide access to electricity? Perhaps you don't, but with the pay and go models that uh, Jenner has, sorry, I don't know if I pronounced right your name, yes, okay. that you have, uh, you have mentioned, this is clearly a marriage between telecom companies, digital finance, yes. banks providing access to electricity. Have you ever think that this is going to be possible? 15 years ago we didn't. We didn't. So we didn't. So this is extremely important to have open minds to really um, to really address these new challenges. But for this to be implemented, this requires for me two main things. One is government government needs to put in place the the right conditions and the right regulation to happen. Pay pay as you go is very well developed in Africa, but it's not in Asia. Why? Because mobile money is not developed there. Why? Because the regulation for banking is not allowing to develop these type of solutions. So working with governments to really address the problem as a whole and identifying what are the different bottlenecks that can be in the regulation of the energy sector, but can be in other places. It can be some taxes to import um, certain products from outside. So it's extremely important to have this holistic and programmatic overview. And the second thing is standardization. As soon as you start bringing new product, bringing new solutions, you need to provide customers, especially these very vulnerable uh, customers, you need to provide them with reliable solutions. You cannot think a, a family in Africa that is spending a huge amount of money to have lanterns or to have a solar home system, that after six months this is not going to work because of nobody has controlled the quality.
And standardization is not only important to provide this reliable service, but it's also critical for financing. Any bank, any investor is not going to provide any kind of credit or financing facility for something that is not te technically and, and, and quality verified. So those two elements for me are critical if we need to really embrace this uh, new way of doing, doing the things. It, extremely important as well, the, the utility part. Now we, we are usually thinking with them, and usually governments, that they have uh, the utilities, in most of the cases they are state-owned, they think at the traditional utility. And they, they cannot address the challenges that we are facing with that. It's estimated that 80% of the population without access to, to electricity is going to be served with different, totally different utility models, utility business models, 80%. So we need to put the conditions for that. Could I just ask Sarah, Janelle, and Robert, each of you, what, is there an innovation that you're particularly hopeful about that is either sort of, so we talked a little bit about this, this sort of, that we didn't imagine 15 years ago we were going to have the merger of cell phones and payments and using it as a pay-as-you-go. Is there some other innovations that you either see coming down the pike that you're particularly hopeful about? Maybe, Sarah, let me start with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I don't mean to make it sound like this, but like there's just been so much change in the energy sector over the last decade or so that it's it's really quite remarkable already. So in a way I'm like, stop changing. But no, I don't, I don't mean that at all. Um, I, I do think that one of the things that we understand coming from just every aspect of the energy industry is this sort of digital overlay on energy infrastructure. And and quite frankly, it's not because everybody, you know, has decided they want digitalization within the energy sector. It's that they they are pretty sure they have to have greater digital awareness, whether they're producing oil and gas, whether they're, you know, running an electric power facility. And, and part of it is, you know, whether you're talking about um, uh, uh, sort of managing managing the information so that you can run more efficiently, or you know, trying to create markets for the enhanced environmental attributes of what you're selling, right? Or trying to create new markets out of distributed energy resources that you can then sort of buy and sell in new and different ways. Like these new business models that people are talking about are largely enabled by these digital systems. And, and what I kind of feel like is like we're we're sort of running and walking and crawling and falling all at the same time where, you know, in some places people have all this information and they don't really know what to do with it. In other places, they're trying to create new models predicated on the existence of this new information. And then in most other places, they're just trying to run their operations better with more awareness. And so I just think that the energy industry in general have just a whole new capability for talking to each other, for understanding their operations, and then for talking to their customer. It's just fundamentally different. And, you know, some people take that too far, and it's sort of like, oh, you'll be able to, like, wield electricity where there's no transmission lines. So that still doesn't happen <laughs> and won't happen. But... But your ability to create markets, your ability to um, uh, to monetize 
particularly environmental attributes of different energy resources is going to is going to be different because you'll be able to monitor that stuff. And so I think that that's going to I, I think that will continue to be uh, transformative. And it certainly has been um, for all the reasons that I think Janelle and, uh, has talked about. Great. Thank you, Janelle. So leading off that, I think I really have two areas that I'm excited about. Related to the digitization, it's really bringing the informal sector in some of those countries into the energy sector and into other sectors as a result of using uh, mobile money. So people before who never had a credit history, who never had any access to banking, now the energy sector is leading the way to, to open up a whole brave new space with all of this data. How, where it leads, still to be determined. The other one that's exciting, and it's the one that I'm working on, is clean energy and ag, or clean energy and productive uses. And it's exciting because it's really simple, cost-effective innovations that can transform lives. You know, we have a story of a lady who was uh, collecting milk. So she'd collect milk, put it in her house, she has no electricity, and um, at night if the milk went bad, she couldn't sell it. One of the projects that USAID is supporting has a very cost-effective um, coal solar-powered uh, fridge that has been used in the US actually for vaccines. It's technology that was pioneered um, by a company for NASA. They've taken it, they've scaled it down, they've made it much more affordable. And this lady told us, it has changed my life. Now I'm able to sell all my milk. I charge my neighbors to actually charge their cell phones. I can send my children to school and I can take care of my sick husband. So I think a lot of times in the energy discussion, it's okay, energy access, on-grid, off-grid, but there's whole this whole productive uses that can be transformative in very simple ways, I think is very exciting as well. Robert. Well, for the, the sake of not being original, I'm going to have to go with digital as well. Um, just as we look out, that's something that has a tremendous amount of potential, whether you look directly in our industry in terms of oil and gas. Um, I think we at Chevron have a huge digital initiative um, that's really aimed at transforming how we do business and driving efficiencies and costs. Um, down in our core business, which as I go back to, as I said before, you know, promotes really affordable and reliable energy um, for the world. And then I think in a direct sense, as my colleagues have touched on, um, the other area of digital that's, that's interesting is that it's really kind of transforming the energy sector from kind of a raw material commodity more towards the service. And that really helps to promote, you know, more sustainable behavior, so it promotes energy efficiency, um, which as you look at the world and what we need to do to supply the world's energy needs becomes a critical piece of the puzzle. Um, in addition, um, it allows consumers access to more information and it also starts to alleviate some of the, the issues around how do you optimize an energy system that has some parts fossil, some parts renewable. So there's a huge amount of potential in digital, both from a customer focus, but also direct in our industry in terms of reducing our cost structure. Good, yeah, Milagros. Well, I have another one. This is funny. <laughs> this is, for me, a technology that is going to be a really game changer is going to be a storage. Electricity storage. storage. Electricity storage is going to really change the world. I'm an engineer, and for those that have been working on the power sector, we always learn that 
uh, electricity cannot be storage. So this creates a lot of inefficiencies because you need to have some capacity, extra capacity to really use in the peak hours and not to use in the valley. So the system in general was inefficient. Now that renewables are coming, that the wind, uh, the wind we have going when we have, and the sun shines only during the day, although the bigger consumptions are at night. I mean, this become, as a system, more inefficient as well. So having a technology that really can uh, storage this energy when it's generated and then to be distributed when it's needed mm. and to separate the generation from the consumption and not to need, need to have something uh, online, I think that is, this is going to change completely. In addition to that, this will solve a lot the problem of on-grid upgrades. I mean, you don't need to ensure the, to provide a, a reliable service to a community to be connected to the grid and to provide electricity from other sources. I mean, with a solar panel and with some batteries, you can solve this problem. So everything related to mini grids, to solar home systems, is going to, to be a tremendous, or I would say a disruptive change in the industry. Prices were very high, but the reduction in prices is, is it's becoming very, very fast at the same level that it has happened with solar. So we can expect that the storage is going to be a really game changer in the, uh, in the electricity world, especially, especially for emerging markets. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Okay, I wanna, I'm going to call on some folks first because I, I wanted to give folks a uh, first round of folks who were at the lunch who I thought were really interesting to either make a comment or ask a question. I want to ask my friend in the pashmina, the light blue pashmina, my new friend Ashley. I want to hear from my friend from the U.S. African, let me start with the U.S. African Development Foundation. I want to hear from my friend from the Asian Development Bank, and I want to hear from my friend Carol Pino. So but let me start with the U.S. African Development Foundation. This gentleman here, Chris, over here, right here, yep. So I'm Tom Coogan from the U.S. African Development Foundation. We're a small U.S. government agency that uh, invests in uh, off-grid energy uh, using uh, uh, small enterprises, uh, basically providing uh, solutions uh, for profitable replication and expansion for what they do. So I've, what I've heard from you really resonates, particularly on the, on the, uh, the projects we've been working on along the lines of uh, agriculture and energy along the lines of, of uh, battery storage also. Uh, it really, those are kind of the world-changing things that are, that are happening. I guess the question would be, uh, um, is, you know, I, I know there's no magic bullet, but as far as scalability, uh, taking those technologies and then bringing them to scale, especially in places like uh, rural Africa. Thank you. Um, thanks, Dan. This is unfair because you know I was here to listen, not to speak. Um, but I'm with the Nuclear Innovation Alliance. My name's Ashley Fine, and I'm, I'm here to learn about um, development issues to try to understand ultimately what issues uh, we would face in trying to find a nuclear energy product that could contribute to clean, scalable energy globally. So my, my question, I guess, um, I think over the lunch talk, I heard a lot about the challenges around uh, permitting and regulations, and that's really um, kind of discouraging because nuclear is something that already has trouble with permitting and regulations in the most developed countries. Um, so I know that's going to be an issue from what I heard at lunch, but can I ask the, the panel to comment on what what's their, you know, 
beyond permitting, um, what would be your next guess at a big issue that nuclear will face in terms of um, contributing to sustainable development goals? Thank you. I call on you because I wanted to make sure that we talked about the taboo. It's a little bit of a taboo about big nuclear, small nuclear, because I think there's a lot of innovation going on in nuclear. And it, last time I checked, it was clean and could be affordable. So I wanted to hear that what the panelists have to say about that. That's why I called on you. Okay. Team Asian Development Bank. This woman here. Uh, so Fei Yu from the Asian Development Bank. I really appreciate the comments of the panelists on all the uh, the uh, very pressing issues in this area. So we do a lot. Of, uh, our vision for the future is kind of captured by some of your comments as well. So we vision we uh, see a decarbonized de uh, and uh, decentralized and uh, distributed future for the energy space in uh, in Asia, where we operate a lot. So my question is that, uh, um, particularly uh, regarding the uh, regarding the uh, storage, which is key for uh, renewable energy, we're experimenting with some of the hybrid systems before we can really come up with some really feasible, economically, uh, uh, financially feasible solutions for storage. Uh, there are some hybrid systems using diesel and uh, natural gas. Uh, so th this can be a kind of a transition uh, before we can figure out the uh, own, own uh, renewable solution to some of the problems. I'm just wondering whether there you have any comments on, on that. Hi, I'm Carol Pino. Uh, I'm the host of a new TV show, Africa USA Now. Um, and uh, I was, I'm the goodwill ambassador for the upcoming Intra-Africa Trade Fair uh, that African Bank is holding next week in Cairo. And so to that, since I'm focused right now on intra-African trade, uh, I wanted to ask about the issue of intra-African trade. The issue you talk about with um, storage is extremely important of being able to sell energy across the border. Um, Chevron, I know for um, uh, Rob, that Chevron has done so much in the local content in helping companies to start to be the suppliers that those are now having markets outside of the, the markets where they started. And I think it's an interesting thing of development um, that's a, a very interesting story. So, Carol, what channel is your TV show on so we can watch if, it? <laughs> thank you. I really didn't pay Dan to do this. <laughs> It'll be launching in January on uh, WATT on PBS stations. Okay, great. So. You should have Sarah on your show. I would love to. Okay, good. It there will go. be. A, it's a current <laughs> event show on the intersection of Africa and the U.S. And anyone who wants to give me a card afterwards, I'll put you on the list and let you know about okay, it. Okay, good. Thank you, You're Dan. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Okay, so let me get the panelists to respond to, to any and all of that. Let me start with you, Milagros. Well, let me take, first of all, the question on hybrids. Absolutely agree. I mean, storage, as I was say, saying, is something that is going to be a game changer. Prices are, re are reducing, but we still need further reduction on prices when it's uh, some technical work to be done, some regulatory changes. We are also addressing some solutions, uh, hybrid solutions, like solar with biomass, solar with gas, different different uh, combinations depending of the nature of the country, but definitely this can be a transition solution for the uh, Transitional, I would say perhaps, would say perhaps 
permanent solution for some of the issues of inter intermittency that we are facing with re renewables. So we are working in this in this side as well. Okay, Sarah. Yeah. Um I'm not sure which question to take, but maybe I'll focus on Ashley's for a second. I mean, I, I do think that nuclear is always an option to be discussed. It's uh, the thing. The thing I worry about uh, is that we've sort of struggled with it in countries that know how to do it, right? And so, so building up the safety capacity, the regulatory capacity, all of those sorts of things that you know really well are is hard to do. And so, you know, when we have this conversation about new business models and new technologies and new arrangements, I mean, I, I do think now is the appropriate time to be thinking about that in the case of nuclear because it takes such a long time to develop those things. But I, I, I think the challenges are really high. And I, and I think that the, I think the concern that you hear on a policy level is that some combination of a, you know, a, a small-scale nuclear you know, plant will be piloted somewhere else because it can happen there. I'm not sure, like I, I, I think that that's the wrong narrative through which to think about this. I think we need to think about the conscious choice for people who want to vend those kinds of technologies to cultivate those kinds of relationships and not immediately say, no, those countries could never do that, right? I mean, that just that that shouldn't be the approach either. So I think there's a big steep hill to climb, um, but I, I I think it's unfair just to sort of count it out for one of those you know two reasons. The other thing I want to just say really quickly is I think oftentimes um, uh, uh, this conversation that we have about off-grid versus centralized or scalable energy resources. Um, is conflated with the one about energy access and productive uses. Mm. And energy active, access and productive uses is like as old as um, dirt, I think, right? I mean, it's a very old kind of conversation. I'm, I'm not from the development community, but I've, I've, I've learned that much. And, and I think what, what is really important is for us to, um, is us to not do that. Uh, I think there is sound energy policy and there are ways of making durable energy systems and I, I get my energy security card taken away if I don't say, you know, diversity is a big thing uh, when it comes to energy security and so that's energy policy. Energy for economic development is, is a different thing and I think that to the extent that um, we're going to start looking at the way in which we're approaching developing economies and saying, okay, that was access and this is productive uses and let's think about how to make, you, you know, make progress on both of those things simultaneously. I think that, I think that is something we need to make sure we do uh, well because there's changes on both fronts there and they both affect the energy system and, and I think we should not try and just play in one space versus the other. Okay. Absolutely, I agree that they're, they're interrelated and, and what you find is that energy for productive uses is leveraging off of energy access, so it, for me it's all one and the same. But um, going back to the comment about the hybrid systems, it's already happening, especially in SIDS, in the small island development states who don't have a choice, you know. Um, I'm from St. Lucia originally in the Caribbean, and we have been suffering from a very, very active hurricane season. And the governments more and more have looked at hybrid systems that integrate everything possible to give us some protection, um, some resiliency. So I think it's actually the diversity 
of those systems is, is the way of the future. And in terms of Tom's question about the silver bullet, really for me it is battery storage because battery storage is integrated into the mini grids for access, into the solar home systems for access, and into the technologies that we are seeing come through, the cold storage, the everything. Once you have batteries, it can work better, longer. So that for me is the magic bullet. Okay. Rob? Sure, so maybe you know one additional thought to start with on the nuclear side. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's happened is after the, the Japanese earthquake, you know, the, the nuclear industry kind of lost the public trust. And so I think that's another area that kind of needs to be regained. But I think the interesting point when you look at projections forward, any sort of scenario that achieves Paris objectives and, and what's needed to kind of you know, contain emissions in the atmosphere involves a lot of growth in nuclear, and, and that sector is largely absent today outside of maybe China. And so there's an interesting point of tension there um, that I think will, you know, will evolve over the next decade or so. Um, you know, to the point on storage, um, agree that that certainly is a, a magic bullet for uh, the power sector. But the one thing I would remind folks is, you know, not everything can be electrified. And so innovation also needs to happen um, in other sectors. So as we think about things like aviation and heavy duty trucks and other things, uh, additional energy sector innovation needs to happen outside of the power sector. And that's an important reminder of sort of the size and scale um, of the global energy system. And maybe to the, to the last question on sort of inter-Africa trade, this isn't, you know, my area of expertise, but my sense is, um, you know, similar to the debate we've been having around is the, the right framework in terms of regulation and policy in place to enable that activity to happen. My sense is largely it's not, and so I think there's more work to be done in terms of partnering with, uh, you know, companies and, and countries that can have influence there in terms of creating that framework to, to unlock that economic potential because certainly it's there. We can take a handful of other questions and comments. Okay, this gentleman here and this gentleman here. Okay. Yeah. Terry Hill with the Emerge Alliance. Um, now that batteries have come up in the discussion, what role will direct current play in the future of the grid? Uh, Bob Eichert from the Atlantic Council. Um, in developing the, the uh, SDG um, 7, um, we talked a lot about uh, financing. And uh, there was a very good report that was done by an international group that looked at different financing approaches. And uh, a point that I always made was um, the importance of trying to work with the local banks and financial institutions. Uh, because if we're going to commercialize the technologies and really unlock the finance sector, it can't all come from the IFIs. So the, I'd be interested in people's views on that. Are there good models? I mean, we were beginning to make some headway in Bangladesh and India and Eastern Africa, et cetera, on that issue. But how, how, how do we do that? And how do we get the bankers more f uh, familiar with, with doing these kinds of, of, of projects? Um, we did on Mini Hydro, but not, not so much on some of the other sectors. Okay, Milagros, let me ask you to respond first to that question. Yeah. So thank you very much for raising this question. I think that is extremely important. And as you say, how to leverage local currency and how to address the local currency risk is critical if we want, if we want really to scale up the investment in, in renewables. How we are working, 
IFC is structured in, along different business lines. One of them is infrastructure that really invests directly with the sponsors and provide financing with the sponsors. But there is another line that is called financial institutions where we work with banks, providing them facilities so that the banks can provide financing to specific projects. And it's not just providing them the money so that they can uh, lend to their customers. It's also working with them to build their capabilities on how to evaluate renewable energy projects, how to even to help them to evaluate them, to identifying what are the good things or the bad things, the, the good projects are the bad projects, the issues that they may have. It's sometimes creating facilities and working, providing advisory as IFC to really local sponsors so that they can access to the financing facilities that have been created with banks. So definitely this is a line that we are working on that and it's critical to reach this uh, development goal. Thank you. Direct current. I don't have a ton to say. I mean, so uh, there are some very notable large-scale projects that, and, and they exist almost everywhere. But uh, certainly, Chinese interest in in, uh, in DC Current, and um, I, I think you have to talk about them in particular applications. I actually don't know if anyone's doing any financing of DC lines anywhere um, uh, from the development. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I've, I've seen a lot of examples of like DC fans. Yeah. So it's coming, and it reduces the power load tremendously, and that allows you then to have smaller PV systems that are less expensive. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, right. I, I don't. Is that something you guys? Have either of you seen D DC, Rob or Janelle? <laughs> Okay. So can I can I just yes. tie it back to the the point about financing? So we did, um, and it did come up in a small roundtable. I think you were there actually, but that but about sort of um, innovation in new energy systems in developing country contexts and matching that up with finance opportunities. And what you find is there's really no one answer to any of these questions. And in fact, there's a pretty um, uh, active debate about whether or not governments need to sort of step in and sort of standardize and regulate these things, or if they need to kind of just like experiment, because this is business model experimentation, right? And so there's a lot of that going on. And what we found is, um, I'm looking at Errol because he was helping me facilitate the conversation, but what we found is like, it depends on what country you're in, what application you're talking about as to what the financing challenges might be. And so I find it's a really interesting patchwork um, discussion right now that maybe isn't you know, it, it kind of evolves year to year, and so I, I, I find it really um, uh, a, a really complex discussion. It certainly, is important to get sort of you know domestic markets involved in that discussion, of course. But it's just so different in so many of like you know the PAYGO system in Kenya and why that doesn't work in other places. It, it's a really interesting um, area that I don't spend a lot of time in, but I but I have learned a, a lot about through your work, Janelle. So what we found in financing is sometimes the DFIs are actually competing or undermining the, the local banking sector. And so the importance, I mean, what, what we sort of recommend on our projects is the importance of working through local intermediaries to educate them. They have access to the deal flow, they have access to the pipeline, they know what will work, what will not work. Um, they can provide the due diligence. I mean, we have come across innovators that have received so much money 
from DFIs or other organ international organizations, but when you when you dig and dig and dig, they're just not well-organized companies. And maybe if some of these organizations had spent some time speaking to you know somebody in country, they would they would actually uh, they would actually learn more. So um, we've seen a lot of you know new funds that have um, come out that are putting money in teams with a good track record and, and good technology. And I think that's a good way to go. If they're already working, if they already have the organizational structure to support X number of companies in, this con in, a, in a country, why compete with them? Why not just give them that money? And you can leverage your money as a DFI. Okay, so I'm going to ask each of you to come up with sort of a 30-second parting thought about this topic of SDG 7, clean and affordable energy. I'm going to start with Sarah. I'm going to ask Milagros, and I'll give Janelle and you, Robert, a chance to think about this. But Sarah, you go first. I think that, Dan, you should keep having events on it because I, no, I think SDG 7 is really important. I think we've made a lot of progress. I think there's still a lot of progress uh, to be made. Um, and I think that it is one of the sort of perfect areas um, for which um, public-private partnership and what the U.S. government can be really good at um, uh, can shine. And so um, I will note, I tend to think of energy as um, much more bipartisan than people give it credit for. Uh, mm. You know, you find with the last administration and this administration, they each have sort of the things they prefer. But quite frankly, you know, this idea that we want to be competitive internationally, we want to be selling U.S. technologies and U.S. energy, we want to be able to find ways to have economic relationships with countries around the world. Um, energy is always there. It's always part of that discussion. And so I think what we need to do is just um, uh, double down on those commitments and, uh, and, and really think about you know, how, to, how to help make that part of our strategic narrative. Okay, great. Milagros? I agree with everybody that enormous progress has, has been done in the access space, but there is still a huge gap that we need to work on that. The role of the private sector in this area, as we have mentioned and discussed, is, is critical. And for this to happen, we need to work on enabling the environment with uh, programmatic approaches that address the different barriers that are needed to be removed so that we can crowd in uh, private capital and helping first mover uh, to really create new business models that are going to be great contributors to the, to the solution of this enormous challenge. Great, thank you. Okay, Janelle. So for me, I see clean and affordable energy actually at a higher level, really as an integrator to the global good. You've got clean and affordable energy, you have, which will lead to private sector growth in the ag sector, just generally. That leads to jobs for youth. We have so many youth in so many countries that are unemployed. Jobs for youth leads to, simplistically, a reduction in violent extremism the importance of energy to health, something we didn't even discuss, uh, rural health centers, um, functioning machinery, health and education, I mean, energy and education, the ability of, of young people around the world to get an education, and then energy and women's safety, because in countries where you've got light, women are much safer. So yeah, I mean, I would agree with my colleagues. I think you know when we think about this space, the big barrier today is really is that 
policy and regulatory climate there to enable the investment in the private sector investment. And so when you look at the report card, those nations who have made progress on energy access have largely started to implement, implement that framework, um, and those that n have not, you know, have continued to lag. So I think it's, you know, as you think about the energy future and the need to, to supply reliable, affordable, and ever cleaner energy, it's really creating that regulatory environment to create that investment. Okay, please join me in thanking our colleagues. Thank you.